You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. I'm Nate Kading, and this is Real Success. This is the Corridor Business Journal podcast, where we explore the life and careers of the Corridor's most influential business leaders. If you're in the Corridor's business world, you already know Mark Nolte. As the longtime president of the Iowa City Development Group, Mark helped supercharge economic development in Johnson County and helped make the Iowa City Cedar Rapids Corridor a more cohesive region. He's now the president of Manufacturing for Moxie, the North Liberty-based solar company, and has been tasked with helping to create the first U.S.-owned, U.S.-made solar panels. It's a big ask, but one that he's excited to take on as he considers the future. We talked about his path to the ICAG group, his thought process in taking on this new role, and his passion for politics and music. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Stay tuned. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's empowered money management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC. Well, Mark, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time here. You know, all of us here in the in the corridor area, especially down in the Iowa City region, you know, know you for all your amazing work you've done with the Iowa City Area Development Group. Um, and we know there's big things on the horizon for you if you sort of transition out of that position into a new role with Moxie Solar. Uh, but I think before we dive into that, we, I, I think it's really interesting sort of your professional story in terms of what what got you to ICAD? What, what did your, your life and your career look like prior to getting into that role that we all know you for? If you want to sure. just kind of take a second and talk a bit about, um, you know, your, your, maybe your college experience, what you, what you wanted to do first professionally, what, what all those sort of ebbs and flows look like before you ended up in that leadership role with ICAD. Sure. So I think the reality was I didn't have a clue. I, uh, I studied psychobiology and minored in, with a minor in religion and philosophy uh, kind of thought I'd go to grad school, maybe be a psychiatrist or a psychologist at some point. Um, didn't have the grades to go to grad school. No one really told me that at the time. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I worked. Uh, I worked forty hours a week or more through college. And where'd you um, work at? I I kind of all over. I started with facilities at Carver Hawkeye. Okay. And uh, then I got into the bar business, and that was a lot more fun, <laughs> a lot, uh, lot more cash, a lot more fun. So I uh, was kind of a professional partier <laughs> towards the end of my career. And um, then I, I kind of I bounced around a little bit right after college, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And in 2000, when Leslie started the dance studio, um, it was a slog. You know, we were two young kids that had a baby. What year? So year 2000. That was 2000. How, how far out of college were you at that point? I was uh, two years out. Leslie was two okay. years out. And um, yeah, it was so. And we went bank to bank trying to find a loan. We mm-hmm. needed 35 grand to start the dance studio. And, um, you know, finally it was one bank. It was like, well, here's the deal. We don't loan money to people who don't have money. And you kids <laughs> don't have any money. Yeah. So we figured it out. We got some uh, family members to put CDs in the bank, and that's how we got a $35,000 loan to start the dance studio. And um, I was working intermodal refrigerated freight. I was booking cargo for C.H. Robinson at the time, and uh, I was like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be someone that helps people like us start businesses. And Mm -hmm. I learned about an organization at the time called the Institute for Social and Economic Development, which is this cool-sounding title, and it was headquartered in Corville, Iowa. Okay. And uh, that's what they did. They helped low-income people start businesses. They did a 16-week training program. And I literally literally walked over there one day 
on my lunch break and I said, I want, I want to do this. I want to, I want to help you guys. And they're like, well, we're, we're hiring. So I did that for a while, and this was back in the earmark days. And at the time, Senator Harkin got an earmark uh, to Iowa had a the Entrepreneurs with Disabilities Programs. So it was a special program that helped people with disabilities start businesses. And sure. we wanted to take that model nationwide. And so he got an earmark, and I was hired um, to help lead an organization that worked all over the country to help set up programs like that. So we'd kind of link their vocational rehabilitation with whatever microenterprise they had. Did that for a few years. And then kind of had that first inkling of a call that to public service. And so kind of left my job and ran for the state house and was concurrently working on Congressman Loebsack's campaign. But uh, it was a rough year financially. I, I didn't have an income. I was running for office. I was this is pre-Citizens United, and I was trying to explain to people that corporate money and special interest money was going to ruin uh, right. democracy. And... Uh, Almost won the race, and I didn't take any PAC money. I was mm -hmm. outspent five to one and almost won, but I came up a little short. And so sitting in the bathrobe the day after the election, like looking at corridorcareers.com, trying what to figure out— What district was this in that you ran for? This was, it's a district that doesn't exist anymore. It's a District 89. So it, okay. it's a, it was the southern part of Johnson County, all of Washington— and then kind of the northern part of Jefferson County, down almost to Fairfield, but not Fairfield proper. Was this about a full year that you worked on that campaign? Yeah, yeah. For, okay. And what were the big learnings <clears throat> there as you were out talking to oh, Iowans my gosh. and rural Iowa? I know you're from rural Iowa originally yourself. Yeah. yeah I mean, what what what'd you take from that experience that year? It was a it was a lot. You learn a lot about yourself uh, out there knocking on doors, talking to people, presenting yourself. I mean, you're the product, right? Mm -hmm. You're selling yourself. And you remember it as a a conversation when you knocked on that door and someone pulled it open from the other side? Is there a conversation that sticks in your brain? Oh, there's a lot. The most impactful or enlightening? You know, I remember I remember a woman, and they, they tell you, don't knock trailer parks because people don't in trailer parks don't vote. But I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock on every door I can get to. And mm -hmm. I remember knocking, this, this thing was about ready to fall down. This thing, you know, right. it, was, it was, probably should have been condemned. And um, so I knock on the door and give this woman my whole spiel and and uh, all she wanted to talk about was abortion. Hmm. You know, we, so we talked about that for a while, and then I was like, well, what, you know, what's going on in your life? And we, just, we sat for probably an hour, and I just talked to her about everything that had kind of gone wrong in her world to get her to this point where she was. Yeah. And it was so interesting that that, but that was still, she stuck to that core value. Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I care about this. And it right. was a big learning curve to me about just how deep some of these emotional ties go with how people vote and what they choose to vote about and she could have cared less about corporate interest you know she didn't <clears throat> and some of the other stuff I was talking about but so it was a lot of those conversations and and you'd get uh, you'd go in an old person's home who hadn't had anyone come to visit him for a long time and they just want somebody to talk to you were right? company yeah yeah and you you know you, you knew the clocks in the back of your mind like I gotta get going I got more doors to hit <laughs> sure. the sun's going down um but there were some it was it was a learning experience, just how deeply emotional politics has become. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to be very logical. Yeah. So. And, and then you're, go, you're going through kind of your career path there. And then what was the, the next step after the Well, I kind of told this for office story and... recently. So I, I um, went and interviewed with ICAD, Joe Ray, so it was the president at the time. And he kind of explained what economic development was. He said, your job is business development. You're going to go on all these trade shows and, you know, try to lure these companies back here with tax credits and stuff. And I remember blurting out in my interview, uh, I, I can't remember if I said that sounds dumb or that sounds 
I said something like that. Something like, right. that sounds really dumb or like really How's inefficient. Yeah. Does this actually work? Yeah. And uh, Joe, to his credit, was like, it is. It's the model. The model's broken and I want to change it. He's like, you want to help me change it? And so he called me on, on Christmas Eve of 2006 and offered me the job. And then, you know, uh, he was just a great person to work with, great team there. And he kind of set the stage. Let's be the most innovative economic development. Let's do economic development that fits an innovative community with a university. Sure. And um, and then when he moved on in 2012, I became interim and was yeah. president for that. I know a big a big thing, and you had a great piece that you posted in in LinkedIn, kind of summarizing your career and learnings. Uh, at, I think it was 13 years, right, at, at, the, yeah. at the helm there at ICAD. And I think one of the main threads woven through your story there is this uh, passion for service. And you always viewed that role as a service to the community, as a service to the, to the business community and to the area in general. What, what is it about that sort of community service that's always really attracted you? It's a great question. And, and I think all leadership should be service. I mean, that's, that's how I was raised. Those are my values. Um, and so it, to me, the, that role offered an opportunity to help my community but do it in a in a in a way that was a blend between for-profit and nonprofit, the private sector, you know, by helping the private sector do better, the community at large. Sure. And so it, to me it was that perfect blend of nonprofit with a for-profit mentality. Um and in some of the things that we we learned and that and that notion of service, it um you know, so here's an example. The um meetup.com, huge mm-hmm. national entity. Uh that started with an entrepreneur in North Liberty. But no one, no one took the time to listen to him. Right. So he moved to New York, started there, and that you know, it's it's people like that. You gotta, we we don't have the luxury of losing mm-hmm. people like that. So that that's what I learned over the years. It's take that meeting with that person that might not even have a full idea, and see what you can do to help them on their path a little bit. Uh, and and with the existing companies, they you never know what they need, yeah. but you build that relationship, and that when that day comes, it, when when they need something that they know there's someone in the community that, that they can go to. Mm-hmm. And, and, we've, and there's a lot of stories that we can't tell, but big, some of our largest employers, you know, I get a call or text in the middle of the night, like, hey, we're having this issue, and I can't tell corporate that this is happening, but is there anyone... How can we think through this? Yeah. How, we, is there anyone you know of that could help us with sure. this situation, stuff like that? And those were the things that were very meaningful, you know, yeah. to me, to be able to, again, you want to, you know, because it's a nonprofit, and you want to be able to beat your chest and tell everyone what you did, but... Uh, you can't a lot of times. You have to maintain that confidentiality, but they know. Yeah. And so. And as you built, one of the things I always admired about you is your ability to kind of juggle all these different responsibilities and time. And But as you become a service to the community, you become more trusted and the more people have your cell phone number and your email and are more apt to call you and text you at different times of night, like you said. How did, how did you handle, this is probably more of a practical question, how did you handle all of those sort of incoming demands on your time and on you and you know, you mentioned all the various meetings. How, how did you kind of, uh, you know, structure that, uh, you know, become flexible to those sort of demands throughout your career at ICANN? Well, I would say early, when I took over as president, I would let those things just fill my day. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to come in at night and do the work. Yeah. Right. My days Imagine are just... You could just find yourself chasing around every yes. respondent emails all day, right? You can. And so then the other, the, the work that you have to get done, I would do that till late at night. And mm-hmm. that was not sustainable. I did that for a number of years. And then started to realize how to build a team and, and what work I, what am I best at and what do I need to outsource? And, and, um, yeah. And that was, I think that was the biggest learning curve. 
because you can't you can work 24/7 but then you can't be a good dad you're not you know you're, there's a law of diminishing returns on how effective you are at everything mm-hmm. health wise everything so finding that balance i think was what took me a few years to figure out yeah and as you look back on uh, your tenure at ICAD, you know I think one of the tricks about your your work in economic development is is what can you quantify in yeah. terms of in terms of wins. You know, I mean, it'd be it'd be sort of a fool's errand to say that any economic development agency can take credit for X Y you know 100 percent of credit uh-huh. for growth here or population growth or gross domestic product growth, all those sort of things that in traditional economic development, like you said 30 years ago, people were sort of hanging those wins on the wall in those offices, but you know, is there some quantifiable things that you would point to? And maybe not saying that it's all credit goes to ICAD for bringing those in, but just what, what have been some of the big moments, economic development moments for the Iowa City area community over the last 10 or 15 years, in your opinion? What, what, what have been some of the, the most important things that we can look at and say, hey, that's a, that's a big win for this area? Yeah, and the notion of metrics is really change dramatically because it, yeah, it was all big what's new right mm-hmm. and, and that's the fun stuff to measure um and you know i remember that one of the first projects i got to work on was the axiona project in west branch you know brought this huge factory old, this old factory back to life and things like that are great um and one of my pet peeves with economic development is is when they try to claim credit for everything you know you gotta yeah again you gotta right. you gotta be able to go out and tell the investors that you, you have value and and kind of i talked about this recently too that to me, if the companies, the only metric that ever mattered to me was if you could go to the CEO or the plant manager, whoever was at that company and say, does ICAD provide value to you, right? It doesn't matter what we put in an annual report or, yeah. or how we try to market it. If you can't go to those people and they, and they can't honestly say that there's value provided, that, that to me was the only metric mm-hmm. that mattered. Uh, and I know that's, that's not a numeric statistic that's easy to put on, a, on some graphic when you're trying to go out and raise money, but... To me, that was the only thing that mattered. Mm-hmm. And if they couldn't answer yes, then we're not doing our job. Yeah. And and again, the the big thing, you know, Geico moving across here, big new building. We were we had a lot to do with helping make sure that stayed in this region. But they moved from Corville to North Liberty, right? And that caused consternation in Corville. You know, mm-hmm. those are the things that they get tough, and that's where that you really have to have trust in in a lot of people because uh, every bank, every builder every architect every you know everyone wants that they want a, yeah they, they want a want piece a of that and only one of them is going to get it mm-hmm. by and large which means all the other ones that invest in your organization are not happy yeah but you have to have the you know you have to be able to have the trust with those people and they have to know that it was everything was above the board and everything was fair and and you have to document and yeah you know i think another another challenge in line of work like yours you said you talked to all these the ceos of the companies and variety of different roles and you're on the ground as things are changing. And with that comes, you know, you're maybe the first one to hear about challenging things Mm -hmm. like people being laid off at Procter and Gamble or business deals falling through or helping, you know, young, perhaps struggling entrepreneurs get a business up off the ground. But again, one of the other things I've always admired about you is sort of this uh, perpetual optimism about the region, you know, not to say that, you know, there isn't great amount of rationality incorporated into that too, but someone in your role has to be sort of the positive leader and, and you know, even when things aren't going great, how do you balance that between, you know, some things may not be going great between showing a, a great face publicly and always trying to encourage people and, uh, you know, help be that positive voice through the community. Well, and that's the challenge that you developed you, over through your career. Or has that well, always yeah. been your nature? I think it's, I think it's my nature, but the career helped pull it out of me mm-hmm. and help me understand it. You gotta be, you have to be the cheerleader. You have to be positive, but you can't lie. 
You can't bullshit people. Can we swear on this? Uh, <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Um, it's part of the fun. And you're, you're the other part of the job, the other hat you wear is chief warrior. You're constantly worried about what could go wrong. Yeah. You know, Martin Rorter comes in to an ICAD board meeting May of 17. Get my, yeah, May of 17 and says, I don't know if the future of ACT is in Iowa City. Mm. Right. That prompted us to jump. That's why this whole ed tech thing. Right was catalyzed because we brought Debbie Durham in. She sensed, you know, all right, this guy's not fooling around. We've got to create an atmosphere that makes him want to see value in the state of Iowa that he doesn't see right now. Yeah. Um, and so that's how you turn those challenges into opportunities. You go to the, you mentioned the P&G thing. I'm really proud of how we collectively handled that news mm-hmm. when it came out. Um, from the mayor to Jeff Fruin to everyone kind of involved from Kirkwood, the utility companies, we all kind of, circled the wagon around P&G, and we said, we understand your decision. You know, we're not thrilled about it, but how do we, how can we partner to make this solid? Right. And we got several notes back from corporate over the, and they're like, that's not how most communities handle this news. Yeah. Most of the time, it, it quickly becomes an adversarial relationship. But we were thinking long-term, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we had some good guidance from, you know, Mike over on the Oral-B side. He's like, we're a big company. We move stuff around. You know, keep that yeah, relationship. Stay the course. Yeah, stay, stay the strong. course. Keep yeah. that relationship strong. Don't burn any bridges. And, and you know, you've got assets here. They own this property. Yeah. So, so I, you know, it was one of the things I'm proud of that we how how the collective response was, and we we try to communicate with the community. Don't freak out. Yeah. You know, and I think you're going to see more of those lines stay here. And I think over time, P and G will bring other work here. Sure. I think, you know, as you're, and we'll get into this here in a second, sort of at a, you know, moving on to moving the chapter onto another act of your professional yeah. career at these moments in our lives, it provides us the opportunity, perhaps for the first time in a long time to reflect back a little bit. If you look back on your tenure at ICAD, is there um, a decision that you made that you would want back? Is there a mulligan somewhere out there during your career? Oh, yeah. um, I don't want to call it a mistake, but if the, if you could change, go back and, and change the course of time, is there is one particular decision you made or instance there that you would that you would want back yeah we were really trying to I was trying to push the point on regionalism when I first took the helm and we we decided to share economic or uh, the existing industry work with the then party one it was the newly formed economic alliance they were just getting their feet under them mm-hmm and uh, we were like, well, let's just have one econo- one business retention person for the region and do that. Sure. And I, I, that was a misstep on my part because what that role is, is all the, it, that manages all the relationships with the existing companies. We hired someone to come in and do the annual survey. Yeah. And it was a big step backward in the relationship because they didn't know where everything, and you, when you go in and meet with those folks, you have to be able to provide assistance it's not just listening to their yeah, information yeah. writing on the form and saying thanks i'll see you next year gonna, they want to yeah have some proactive vision and yeah so how can so all those, how they can help yeah because that was part of my role before i was president and mm-hmm. so i became president I'm like well i gotta figure out what i can do what i can't do i'm gonna outsource that sure that was a huge mistake and so it took me two two probably two three years to get that trust and that relationship back with our companies yeah to where i said you know, my, my title, I'm the president of the organization, but I, existing industry is the most important thing to me in the relationships with these companies. And so I'm going to do that. Yeah. So I'm going to be at the one. But it took a couple of years to get back the trust in the... And again, you know, I knew why we were trying to do it. We were tr- I was trying to 
save cost. We were trying to mm-hmm. be regional. I was trying to lead by example that we should do some things regionally. Ended up being a huge mistake. Yeah. Where do you where do you view economic development regionally here in the corridor area? In a perfect world, what would that look like five, ten years from now, in your opinion? Yeah, I better be careful what I say here, but um, I, I think that selling the region externally has to be done regionally. Um, but again, main what you the relationships and the intricacies of the local markets you have to people on the ground in those people on the ground you know the regions yep. yeah so it's it's finding that balance between what where does it make sense to tell the story to the world that we're one region but at the local level make sure you're providing the right kind of, of yeah pathetic yeah the, the, yeah the response that fits your community mm-hmm. and and knowing who you know where the bodies are buried and what's been tried and you need to talk to this person, so-and-so. Right. And that gets really hard when you have, and that's what we learned with the existing industry, when you have so many companies you're trying to deal with, you know, yeah. you lose that. So yeah. it's finding that balance between. Sure. Uh, Walk us through the decision process for you to transition out of the role in ICAD and, and move on to your role now with Moxie Solar, and you've taken on exciting things there. And I know myself personally and a, a lot of people listening have, you know, gone through career changes, um, some forced on them by torn groins and ACLs and they can't <laughs> kick a football anymore. And others, you know, like yourself, where it was, you know, fully of your own own doing. And, you know, I know you thought through it and had a bunch of different things. But if you could boil that decision down to and explain, you know, why you decided why this time now for you personally and professionally was the right time for a, a career change. How would you explain that? Sure. And there's there's so many variables. So I'll start on the one, I think it's healthy for organ- these organizations to have leadership changes every six, seven years. I think that's just, I think that's good. I, I, I've got peers around the country, around the state that have been in these roles for 20, 30 years. And I just think you can get pretty set in your ways. And that just, I didn't want to, I, I knew I didn't want to do that. I, right. I knew that there was a shelf life. Um, at some level, I felt like I, I've taken the organization as far as I could and it needed some new mm-hmm. vision. Uh, you know, continue what's been built, but taken its own way. Um, the, you know, I, I think I've been pretty open. I've got some political aspirations. And one thing about being in a role like like I was at, at ICAD, I've got to be very mindful of everything right. you say and keep all of your investors happy. And that, you that means... You have to be apolitical. You do. I mean, that was part of my... Yeah. Coming off my political run in 2006, that was part of my employment contract. Mm-hmm. You know, not even a bumper sticker on my car. <laughs> right. Right? You... And you have to be agnostic on all things political. Sure. Uh, and that's difficult for someone who cares very much about policy. And Yeah. Um, so that was another consideration. Uh, and then it was just, but but really it was the excitement of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, talking with Jason this fall, I was, I mean, I was there in my ICAD hat trying to figure out where should he go, building and incentives and all that kind of stuff. And the more we talked, you know, just, it, you know, I think he got to a point where he's like, he needed there's only so many hours in the day. He's running a growing enterprise. He needed someone who could dedicate time to this. To growth, yeah, to this new opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it ta- it, it's going to take, you know, it's a full-time effort, just this new division, this sure. new business unit. And so he, he kind of floated the the idea one day at coffee, and I kept thinking about it. He kept thinking about it, and it just seemed like the time was right. I want to do right by ICAD. The ICAD's next fundraising campaign will be this fall. Mm-hmm. So from a timing standpoint, they can do their search, bring someone new in, they can get their feet under them, and that person can go out this fall with their vision and their plan. Right. If I waited a year, let's say, because I put my political aspirations front and center, and then 
left in the middle of a campaign. Well, that that's yeah. not fair. Sure. You know, and you know, Joe Joe got offered an, a job opportunity in the middle of a campaign and left, and it was really tough. Right. Um, because again, you're out there selling trust. Yep. Right. Hey, business owner, we're hoping you invest in ICAD because we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And if there's no leadership at the helm, or you know, then that it's it's difficult. So I, I wanted to do right by ICAD there, trying to do right by my family. You know. And so I'm trying to balance all these things, and it kind of, kind of came to a point yeah. where in early December, Jason shot me an offer letter and talked it over with the family, and uh, I said, "All right, yeah, it's time to go." That's awesome, and a lot of excitement comes with that, right? New opportunities and new group to work with, and you said, you know, now your office is a warehouse, yeah, on 965, and life changes. Yeah, it's got to got to be incredibly exciting. Share just a, real quickly what is. What does this new project look like for Moxie Solar? What are the, what are the goals? What, you know, how does that, uh, how will that affect the company going forward? Talk sure. a bit about what you're working on. So the reality is most uh, solar panels that are installed today are either imported from China or they're made by Chinese companies that have set up shop in the U.S. Okay. There are tariffs on solar panels now, up to 30%, um, that creates an opening for U.S. manufacturing. Currently, there is not one U.S.-owned, U.S.-manufactured solar panel on the market. Okay. There are some U.S. companies wow. that manufacture in China, and there's some Chinese companies that manufacture in the U.S., but there's no U.S. owned. And so a challenge like that to Jason Hall is, like, that's what we're going to do then. <laughs> we're going to be that company. That's awesome. Let's be the only U.S. owned assembly. You know, So we'll import a lot of the actual, the, the little modules, the little components. The components, the, yeah. yeah, the solar cell, because that's a, that's a messy process mm -hmm. to make those. Uh, but our job would be to assemble the, the panel and then sell, obviously, the a lot of them back to Moxie on the install side. But uh, if we do it right, we'll have excess capacity. We can sell to the open market. Okay. And are they earmarking this region yeah. specifically for this project? How how big? How many employees? What's what are, what are <sighs> that's, this, some high-level number? Anything you can share from Well, that yeah, standpoint? that's this Rubik's Cube. The the more automation we can afford on the front end, the, the fewer jobs. Mm -hmm. But there will be higher quality, higher paying jobs. Right. You know, and that's what all manufacturing is going through. And that's what I've been working yeah. with manufacturers for the last 14 years. So that's that was, so that was, that's kind of the experience I brought in. I've been able to, to meet with and see what's worked, what has, hasn't worked. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, I think the initial plan, we're going to lease a building, set up the line, run it for a while. And then Jason's vision is to build a campus where he'll have manufacturing, the install side, and some of the other business units. They're into electric vehicle sales now. That's great. So we'd like to build a, a campus for all these entities. But mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a walk before we run. Yeah. Let's find a building, set up the line, prove that we can do it, and then think about real estate. Yeah, it's got to be exciting to have one one specific particular project to kind of take on as oh yeah as your task and see it through and that's 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 got to be great it's it's exhilarating it's it i mean i'm in on day, an industry that that's matters to the world and that matters to the world yeah and 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 that's what I, again i really respect about jason and the whole team at moxie it's it's more than just one bottom line yeah you know they want to make money but they also know that every panel on the roof you know is uh sure benefits the earth so mark i know you, another thing and I'm, talk, I'm listing off all these things that i that I admire about you and you've all you've been a great great mentor to me uh, since I've come back to the area post NFL. But I think other thing that I've really admired about you is the, you know, is this balance between that you're able to achieve between your work and then, you know, things outside of work, even though you've got all these, you know, tons of responsibilities in your professional life. Um, you know, obviously you're helping your wife with her, with her business. You guys are co-owners there. You've got, uh, you know, a bunch of kids. You're, I know you're always running around and coaching 
different sports, but I know one of the things that you're really passionate about is your is music. And I, you're in a band, City Park, and uh, you guys, you know, great great music. Seen several of your shows. Talk a bit about the role music plays in, in sort of your life, and and uh, you know how you're purposeful about carving out that time to to make sure you're, uh, you know, to put putting in the, putting in the time and and enjoyment with with music. Yeah, I think for me, music has always been kind of a path to mindfulness that was you know before I learned to meditate or anything like that uh, music does that to my brain music releases me from the doubts and that little you know that voice that's yeah. always going in your head and so the right kind of music is that and so it those moments where you're able to do it in a when you're performing I'm oh, assuming, assuming in, a, in it with amongst a team you sort of get into that flow state <sighs> where you just sort of it's a good way to take your mind off everything else and just be there those are the most special moments. And I remember just, that was one of my first band in high school. We'd, when we'd hit that once in a while, you get it. You get why people do it, yeah. and then you crave it. You want more of that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it's a lot of fun with the, the group now, whether we're just practicing on a Sunday afternoon or, or the shows. Uh, when you hit that, that groove, yeah. and uh, you know, we, we had a show this summer where it was it, really was clicking and everything came together and then the, the skies opened it just started pouring <laughs> we just but we all afterwards were like kind of comparing notes we're like were you you know were you in the spirit world there and i was yeah. like yep just rolling that's awesome it was fun and you mentioned you know perhaps some aspirations politically beyond that what what can you share about your where you're at in that process of feeling that out how does that look you know for you here over the course of the next year or two I, at this point, I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on nothing but Moxie and my family for the next year. And this time next year, we'll kind of see where things are at. If the production line's up and going, and no one that I get, can get behind has raised their hand and said they'll run for governor, then it's something I'll I'll consider doing. What are the What are the biggest challenges right now facing the state that you think you or a team around you can help fix? What 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 is it? As you look, as your kids are going to grow up here and start businesses here and raise families in the state of Iowa, what what are the biggest challenges coming down the pipeline that you want to help be a part of correcting? Well, I, I think they're all connected. So rural Iowa is struggling, right? Because the farm, you know, the, the economics around farming have changed so much. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, the soil quality is diminishing. We can't ignore that. We can't just keep throwing anhydrous on it and hoping that we're going to grow a crop every year. We've gone from several feet of topsoil down to five, six inches. Right. So we've got to change the farming um, and how that's done. And so therein is an opportunity to revitalize rural economies. We've got to find a way to keep more young people in our state. Um, we've got to... So my whole kind of thing in a nutshell is the, the intersection between a, a new type of education and a focus on entrepreneurship is what could revitalize our state, bring people back, create new markets, create you know, yeah. um, so that we're not so commodity dependent in most of the state. Uh, and we've got to find ways to attract people back. And so, if you can leverage those, what's best about our state, the values, the work ethic, and all those things, but do it under the lens of of some new thinking of right. some innovation, mm -hmm. I think I think you could see this renaissance. And if we do that, it's going to change how we eat. I think there's a health crisis in our state, both physically and mentally. So I, there's there's this connection, but if we if we kind of go back to what makes us good and rethink Leverage those yeah. strengths and yeah, what I love about that too is the you know innovation is a solution both rural and urban, right? I mean it's not just yeah. something that applies 
in one place or the other. Like you said, there's big challenges on both of those fronts. So being able to apply some new creative thinking uh, to those problems, I think is going to be, you know, a win for Iowa in general. That's great. Well, we'll be here certainly cheering you on as you explore that, but um, you know, congratulations on, on that transition into your, into your new career. It'll be fun to see that uh, take shape here over the course of the next year. Uh, we'd like to end all these interviews with some fun little questions here. Um, okay. Our rapid fire questions. How much of your success would you contribute to luck versus hard work? It's got to be 50-50. I feel like I've been very blessed, very lucky by some of the people I've met, some of the people that have taken, you know, that have helped me, um, and I've worked my tail off. So I think it's a mix. Yeah, it's great. If given the chance, what profession, other than uh, this is an app that's been part of our, <laughs> you, you're trying several different professions here and have uh, through the course of your professional career in general, but if there's one that you could put all of it aside, blank slate, and just say, this is me, the new Mark Nolte, I get, I get one new career, what would it be? I think I'm in it right now. I think if I, if I can prove that... Build something amazing. Yeah, yeah build something from the ground up. Yeah. That's great. Has there been um, a business leader, and maybe focus this one more specifically locally, has there been one particular business leader here through your time at ICAD that you've really looked up to that's been a key mentor to you that uh, you try to model yourself after? There have been so many. I mean, I, I think I know, I know there's been tons of them. There have a few I, that come to mind off the top of your head. Yeah, there's so I'm looking at the the list over here, and someone like Dwayne Smith and you know, the city managers Kelly and and uh, all these guys. I mean, there's so many people that I I looked up to. I, um, you know, Chuck Peters was a big influence and, and mentor on me. Um, Is there a quality or attribute that you admire the most out of leaders? Is there one? one particular thing that you think every great leader should do or have as a part of their DNA? Just have some vision, you know, be thinking about what could be, right? How do you turn a challenge into an opportunity? Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, outside of business, is there a podcast or TV show? What's on at the Nolte house <clears throat> these days? I, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't do podcasts. Okay. I listen to music. Other than real success, that's your. Other than real success. Podcast, yeah. I just, yeah. I don't listen to a lot. I'm sorry. What's in the car right now? What are you, what are you playing? What's in the CD player? Uh, honestly, what, so Joe Moreland burned me some old high and lonesome music. He went to the library and burned some of that. And that was, uh, <laughs> shining. Archives. Yeah. Shining softly was a song we played at our wedding reception. Um, so that I'm, I'm a Zeppelin guy. Mm -hmm. I grew up on Zeppelin. I'll always default back to that big Pearl Jam fan, but, uh, yeah, any, I mean, it just, Anything that strikes the fancy. Yeah. And these Spotify, the, the algorithms on Spotify have gotten to be pretty creepy. Like, <laughs> they'll dial stuff in that you don't, you don't even know you like, and you're like, I love this. Yeah, that, that is pretty awesome. It kind of yeah. helps, helps you discover some new it music. It does. In your genre, but maybe just a touch of yeah. foot outside of it. That's fun. Yep. I'd rather be outside. That's good. What's your favorite outdoor activity? What do you... Really getting into mountain biking. All right, nice. Yeah, Adam uh, Ingersoll showing me the ways on how to not die on the bike like true mountain bike like sugar bottom or like get on a mountain bike and ride gravel roads and putz well, around what's the uh, i would say you know the, you got more a favorite the trail in the area uh say, i like i go to uh what's the one uh the over oh, in corville the corville loop there around yeah the creek that's fun yeah, but we've done some trails in wisconsin that are yeah scary Kettle moraine or something yeah, yeah. It's fun. um how about a motivational quote is there one or two things that popped to your mind or something you'd hang on the front of your desk or at, the, at your office? You know, I, I've always, uh, be the change you want to see in the world has kind of always been one. And then, and then uh, from the Bible, all things are possible to him who believes. Yeah. Awesome. 30 extra minutes in a day. What would you do with it? 
just do something outside with the kids. And is there a book? I know you're a reader. You're a very avid I reader. Do like is there reading. something that's been really influential with you during your career? Oh, man. I know it's always a hard one. Someone like it is. I think the, one of the most fascinating books that I've read in the last couple of years has been Sapiens okay, uh, by Yuval Noah Harari. Just fascinating how we got as, as a human species, how well, we got to we this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you, when you see that, it, it's, it, it's fascinating like what we could be. Right. In one sentence, how would you define success? I think it's achieving lofty goals that you set out without compromising your values. Can't get any better than that. Appreciate it, Mark. Thank you for coming on and uh, look forward to following your progress here the next year with Moxie. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This episode was produced by Joe Coffey of Coffee Grande Studios. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CB Journal. <laughs>